Good morning again. I have, uh, I've never been one of those people who always has to win all the time. Like, don't get me wrong, I like winning. Winning is, winning is kind of fun. Uh, but I don't have to win at everything. But you probably know somebody who does, don't you? Right? Some of you are pointing at the person next to you. Awesome. Um, <laughs> today you win. Um, but you probably know somebody who has to win all the time. Like, in competitive situations, they aren't always the most pleasant people to be around, are they? And because I've experienced that, because I've seen that, I think that's part of why I try not to be like that myself. Now, don't get me wrong, I have four small children, three of whom are old enough to start like playing games and stuff, and it, it's a struggle for me sometimes to let them win, like even though I know I should, like at least sometimes. But I'll, I'll talk about it in a minute. They also need to learn how to lose, so I don't mind being the one to teach them that. But I think the other reason that I don't have to win all the time is because of my own personal history of athletic competition. And in that history, there was a lot more losing than winning. Growing up between soccer and baseball and basketball, I probably played like 20 seasons. I kind of try to do the math. 20 separate seasons of sports, 20 chances to be on a winning team, 20 chances to maybe even win a championship. And I have one championship to my credit. One. One year. One soccer team, a team that actually wasn't even originally on, but like there was a switch and I switched places with somebody else and ended up on the team that, that won the championship. And, you know, I'm sure that I was on some other teams that won games from time to time, but I learned how to lose through not always being on the winning team. And through that, I learned that winning wasn't everything. Now, now that being said, I'm going to say something that might be a little controversial in our current culture. And I know that I'm probably not supposed to say this, but winning's fun. Like, winning's legitimately fun. In a lot of ways, winning is more fun than losing. And so I'm just, I'm just going to say that. I had a lot of fun playing sports growing up, but I remember that winning season, that championship season, being particularly fun because we just kept winning. And winning the championship was fun, and celebrating that championship after the fact was fun. It was cool to be on the good team. It was cool to get the trophy that didn't just say in the league but said champions. It was fun to be better at soccer that season than every other team. Now, I wasn't better at soccer than everybody else, but my team was. But unfortunately, or at least in my opinion, it's unfortunate. We've switched to this everybody is a winner participation trophy mentality with kids' sports, which I think is fine when they're really little. I do. I don't have a problem with that when they're really little. Um, they, they need to learn how to play the games first because they are just that. They're games. But at a certain point as they grow up, I think it's healthy that they learn how to win and lose. I believe every kid needs to experience that, and here's why. Because as they grow up, and especially as they get out into the world, there are no more participation trophies. Everyone doesn't get every job they apply for. Everyone doesn't get paid the same amount. Effort and skill and talent and ability and drive and work ethic, those things all matter. And if you've never experienced what it means to lose you won't handle your first rejection very well out in the adult world. And so it's, it's confusing because when they're really little, kids learn that, that greatness is sort of trying. Like greatness is found by sort of trying. That's what a participation trophy says. You showed up, good job. You're good enough to deserve a trophy. But then adult life will eventually tell them that greatness is reserved for whoever works the hardest, does the best, is the smartest, or has the best connections or whatever other qualification. And then if they hear about greatness at church, it's even more confusing because greatness in our spiritual lives is a totally different idea. 
And Jesus addresses this idea pretty much head on. And, and that's one thing that's really interesting if you study Scripture very much, and especially the life of Jesus. There are, there are certain things that Jesus speaks mo- about mostly in parables, in stories. Jesus tells these stories to teach these points, and it's his way of helping those who are listening to more easily understand what he's trying to say. It gives them a real example that helps them realize something beyond the story itself. Now, that's not to say that everybody always understood what Jesus was trying to say with a parable, but it was supposed to make it easier to understand. I know for me, I I love parables. I've learned a ton by studying Jesus' stories, his parables. I think it's a fantastic way to teach. But there are also these moments where Jesus goes right at an issue or a topic, and he he just hits it head on. And when those stories occur, when we read those, I think sometimes we just need to step back and clap it up for Jesus because he's just so right on. He says what we would probably want to say in that situation. And so this was one of those moments that we're going to study today. There was a a group of guys who loved to show off just how great their spiritual lives were. They loved telling people how much better they were than everyone else and how much everyone else should try to be like them. They were known as the Pharisees. We don't usually speak very highly of them, and I'm, I'm not going to this morning either. They were the religious leaders, the religious elite of the day, and truth be told, Jesus was not a huge fan of theirs. In fact, Jesus was more harsh with them than he was with anyone else. And I don't want to make it sound like Jesus was mean to them, because that's not what I mean. But he refused to allow them to believe that they were better than anyone else. He refused to coddle them. He didn't treat them with kid gloves. He didn't tiptoe around them. He didn't hesitate to tell them how it really is. And so in Matthew 23, Jesus is talking to his disciples and a large crowd, which is pretty common. If you read through the Gospels, through the life of Jesus, you see these moments where Jesus is teaching his specific group of followers, his closest followers, his 12 disciples. But in those situations, there's often also this greater crowd gathered around them. It's like if I was talking to the front row of people, of course, there's nobody in the front row, um, but if I was talking to the front row of people and you all were more observing, you're still going to hear what I'm saying. You're still going to understand. You're still going to learn, I would hope. And so Jesus is teaching his disciples, but there's this greater group listening. And this is a really cool chapter in Matthew because it's kind of this side of Jesus that we don't always get to see. Because have you ever just known somebody who needed to be called out? <laughs> like they're, they're just doing something over and over again, or they're saying the same things over and over again, and, and they're just out of line, and you just want somebody to be the one to speak up and tell them to stop to point out that they're screwing up. Most of us don't like to be that person, uh, to, to be the one to speak out. Well, right here, Jesus is that person. He, he, just, he just hits the nail on the head. He pretty much calls the Pharisees out in front of everyone, and it's awesome. Matthew 23, beginning of verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. He gives them credit where credit is due. He says they are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. They know it better than anybody. And then he says this. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. They don't practice what they teach. Jesus isn't pulling any punches here. I feel like he's saying that they know a lot, but they don't live it. Or even do what they say, not what they do. It's a pretty strong indictment of the Pharisees and how they live. It's a pretty strong statement against the religious leaders of the time. And typically we are pretty hard on the Pharisees, but, but, but in truth, just based on what he said here, a lot of us are like them in different areas of our lives. 
There are areas of our lives where we know the right thing and we even say the right thing, but we don't always do the right thing. Parenting, for instance. I say a lot of the right things. I know what I should do. I even do the right thing a good portion of the time. But there are days where you wouldn't want to follow my example as a parent. Because there are days where I don't live what I say. I don't do what I know I should do. And so if you followed my example, it wouldn't work real well. And so if the Pharisees, if, if, if they just have bad days, if they just have these slip-up moments, then we probably can't be so hard on them. But Jesus goes on in verse 4. He says, They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra-wide prayer boxes with Scripture verses inside, and they wear robes with extra-long tassels, and they love to sit at the head table at banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogues. They eat this up. Power is addicting, right? Like, position is addicting. If you've ever been in a position of power for even a short amount of time, like, you get kind of pumped up about that, right? Like, it is addicting. It's, it's, it, all of this is understandable that they'd be tempted to do this, but the problem is they're not just tempted to act this way. They do act this way. Everything they do is for show. Remember a few seconds ago when I suggested that we might be being too hard on them? Never mind. Because I may struggle some days as a parent, but I don't do it intentionally. And Jesus makes it clear that the Pharisees know exactly what it is that they're doing. They eat up the glory of their position. They lord their position over people. They hold people to impossibly high standards, or as Jesus puts it, unbearable religious demands. And they do it because they think they have the right to do it. That's the whole reasoning here. Jesus continues. He's not done with the Pharisees yet. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in marketplaces and to be called rabbi. Don't let anyone call you rabbi, for you have only one teacher, and all of you are equal as brothers and sisters. And don't address anyone here on earth as father, for only God in heaven is your father. And don't let anyone call you teacher, for you have only one teacher, the Messiah. You see, Jesus finishes breaking down all the ways that the Pharisees have messed this up, even down to the names they like to be called. I honestly believe what Jesus is saying here is that if you didn't call them by the right name walking down the street, they would correct you. Now that's arrogant. That's crazy. But that's what they did. They, they loved to be called rabbi. They loved to be seen as important. He makes it clear that this is an ego issue at its heart. That they love to feel important and making others feel like they've failed spiritually makes them feel even more like they are legitimately the religious elite. That in the eyes of God, they are simply the greatest. There's nobody better. But then Jesus makes his most important statement in this whole passage. He says this in verse 11. The greatest among you must be a servant. But those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see, this whole statement, this whole indictment of the Pharisees, let's, let's think for just a second. Who did it say Jesus was talking to? We don't know if there were actually Pharisees present or not. It doesn't say that. And so this entire statement, this entire indictment of the Pharisees wasn't necessarily about tearing them down as much as it was using them as an example for Jesus' own disciples and for the crowds that were there to learn from. 
And I think it's for us to learn from too. And Jesus does this so often. He, he's just, he just gets to the end of a statement. And he makes this statement that just flips the cultural norm and makes it clear that following him is not easy. It won't be popular and it won't make sense to the world. Because to say the greatest among you must be a servant, these people had to be looking at themselves going, ah, that doesn't make any sense. But then he said, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And I can imagine there were some people standing there going, the Pharisees are going to get it. Because they knew what was coming. And they knew how they were. You see, Jesus makes it clear that true greatness isn't about becoming the best, about serving the least. Which is directly against the dominant culture 2,000 years ago. It's directly against our culture today. I, I, I understand it. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing because that means it matters. Because we're so tempted so often today to look out for ourselves first, to make ourselves the center of the universe. And on top of that, when we do things for other people, when we do serve other people, we're very tempted to want public credit for that. To want people to say, great job, look what you did. But that's not true greatness in the eyes of Jesus. That's not true greatness. Now, I want to make something clear here. Jesus didn't say that it was a sin to be good at something. He didn't say it was a sin to even be great at stuff. We should always give our best. It's important that we understand that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, it says this, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So, so it's, it's okay to, to do well. It's good to try hard. We should. We need to give our best for God. And I believe that God created us to be great because he created us. In Genesis 1, we read about how God created everything. And after he made each thing, he said it was good. Then God created man, and he doesn't just say that his whole creation is good anymore. In fact, he he doesn't say it's okay or above average. He says in verse 31 of Genesis 1, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. If the God of the universe made us, I believe that means we were made for greatness. But again, it's the definition of greatness that determines what this looks like in our lives. And again, greatness is not about being better than everyone else in anything, which which is difficult in a world where that's what's valued. But if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, eventually you have to realize it's not about you, it's about him. John the Baptist realized this. Uh, John the Baptist came before Jesus, and and his primary job was to prepare the way for Jesus. He came and told people, Jesus is coming. It actually sounds like a pretty cool job. He traveled around, told people Jesus was coming, dressed crazy, slept with his head on rocks, and ate bugs. Like, that was kind of his thing. He was the nutty guy, standing on the corner screaming, but you know what? He was telling the truth. Jesus was coming. And so what happened was, John became pretty popular. He, He developed quite a following. You know, we read a lot about the crowds that followed Jesus from place to place. John had a pretty solid crowd of people that followed him as well. John had disciples. And even after Jesus came, and even after Jesus began his ministry, John still was around, and he still had these people that were following from place to place. And that led to a a very interesting conversation taking place between John and some of his closest followers. In John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22, Then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem, And went into the Judean countryside. And Jesus spent some time with them there, baptizing people. At this time, John the Baptist was baptizing at Anon, near Salem, because there was plenty of water there, and people kept coming to him for baptism. 
This was before John was thrown into prison. A debate broke out between John's disciples and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing. So John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, he's talking about Jesus here, is also baptizing people. And everybody's going to him instead of coming to us. Now John's disciples have what I would consider to be a very human response to this situation. They were followers of John. Somewhere along the line, I guess they decided that he who baptizes the most must be the most important, and so they sound just a little bit jealous that people are going to Jesus for baptism instead of John. And I don't think that we can blame them for feeling that way. They may have felt like they hitched their wagon to the wrong horse here. They, They may have felt like maybe they were following the wrong guy. But John clearly doesn't feel threatened by Jesus or or bothered by the fact that more people are going to Jesus for baptism. In fact, here's what John says in verse 27. John replied, No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you. I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. There must be something about having disciples that means you don't get listened to very well. Because Jesus, you know, we read all these times where Jesus told his disciples over and over again, I'm going to die. I'm not going to be with you anymore. And every time it seems like his disciples go, okay, sure, Jesus, like that's what's going to happen. And again, here we see John's disciples clearly didn't listen all the times that John said, I am not the Messiah but there's one coming. And so he tells them, listen, I've told you. I'm just glad to be a part of the story. And and I love that. He he makes it clear to his followers that that he's not Jesus, but was to prepare the way for Jesus. And and then he's glad to play a part, to play a role in the story of the Messiah, the Savior. And that's an extremely admirable attitude to have in this situation. John was keenly aware of his role in God's plan. And then he goes on to say something even more important than what he said already in verse 30. He must become greater and greater. And I must become less and less. This is at the core of true greatness. True greatness comes from putting Jesus before everything. Making Jesus greater and greater and ourselves less and less. It's counter to our nature and yet it is true greatness in the eyes of God. John continues in verse 31, He has come from above and is greater than anyone else. We are of the earth and we speak of earthly things, but He has come from heaven and is greater than anyone else. John is is very clearly separating himself from Jesus. We are of earth. Jesus came from heaven. This matters. He goes on. He testifies about what he has seen and heard, but how few believe what he tells them. Anyone who accepts his testimony can affirm that God is true, for he is sent by God. He speaks God's words, for God gives him the Spirit without limit. The Father loves his Son and has put everything into his hands. And anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. You see, John here, he doesn't want any confusion. He doesn't want anybody thinking he's the Savior. 
He doesn't want anybody believing in him. He's never offered anybody eternal life because that's not his role. He can't do that. And he includes his response to his own followers by making it clear who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what that means for his followers and for us. And if his description there, which I feel like was probably delivered passionately when he said it to them, if that description of who Jesus is and why he came and what it means for us, if it isn't enough to make us realize we have to put him first, then we didn't read it or we don't believe it. And so even if we can agree that true greatness means putting Jesus first, how do, how do we put that into practice? How do we put that into practice in our everyday lives? Maybe it's something as simple as waking up each and every morning and choosing to make Jesus' name great rather than your own. And I understand that that morning is not necessarily the time of day we want to make an important choice like that, an important commitment like that. I mean, I love my children, but I do not love the morning, and they seem to. I don't know why that is. You never know which kid will hear first through the baby monitor. You'll never know which kid will make their presence known by jumping on the bed. Kids don't know how to gently wake you, do they? But they are the reason I rarely need an alarm clock anymore, so... And so with a whole day of unknowns, every morning you start with a whole day of unknowns in front of you. With that in front of you, it's tough to say, today I'm going to make Jesus' name great. Because it doesn't matter how planned out or scheduled your day is. It is full of unknowns anyway. I would think that by now I would stop proclaiming in the morning what I'm going to accomplish in a given day because it rarely actually turns out that way. But I still do it. And and so knowing that, deciding in the morning that today I'm going to make Jesus' name great, it just seems like a setup for failure. It's good intentions, but they only get you so far. And yet it's only a setup for failure if I let myself fail at it. It's only a setup for failure if I don't try. Jesus doesn't call us to never mess up. He calls us to strive to do our best to follow him as closely as possible. And so in this, it's our responsibility to strive and to do our best to exalt His name, to make His name great, to make His name known, to share Him with the world. We won't always be great at it. We'll end some days and say, you know, I never even you know, made Jesus' name known in a whisper today, let alone speaking loudly. And we'll end days and, 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 and sometimes we'll say, you know, I probably did more today to make my own name great than I did to make known the name of Jesus. But if if we realize that, then we go to sleep and we wake up the next morning and again we say, today I'm going to make the name of Jesus great. And we try again. God didn't call us to perfection. He called us to try, to strive. And while perfection is impossible, trying for it is something we can do. So is it that simple? Is it as simple as waking up every morning and choosing to make the name of Jesus great rather than our own? I believe that it is because he is greater. No matter what we've done, no matter what we will do, the most accomplished person in the world is so much below Jesus. Jesus is so much greater than anything. Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11 says this, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. 
Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If the God of the universe, who came down to earth as a man in the person of Jesus, could become the ultimate servant, dying on the cross for you and me, who don't deserve it, by the way, Jesus took our sin and our shame to the cross. He took our punishment. He didn't have any of his own. There was no punishment that he deserved. He took ours. If he could do that for us, who are we to put ourselves before him, even in our own lives? He who gave it all for you and for me must become greater and greater. And we must become less and less. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that every morning when we do wake up, that that we do start our day with you. And just in doing that, we we set the tone for our days. But God, I pray that we would make the decision every day to to make your name great. And the little things and the big things we do as as we go about our days to school or to work or whatever it is that we do, I pray that we realize through all of those things we have opportunities at every moment to make your name great. To shine your light, to show your love in a dark world and to people who absolutely need to know that someone loves them and it's the God of the universe. God, we can do a lot of really good things and get a lot of credit for ourselves. But that's not what we're called to do. God, I pray the opportunities that we see in front of us, the opportunities that you give us every single day to serve, to meet needs, to show love, that first of all, we would take those opportunities, and that second of all, we would make sure that you get the glory. God, we are nothing without you. We know that. We don't always live that way, but we know that. So I pray we would want the world to know you too. I pray you'd help us to focus as we continue in our service, as we, as we take communion, as we remember this, this sacrifice, this ultimate moment of servitude. Jesus went to the cross for us, a bunch of sinners. Help us to focus on that during this time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.